Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I am your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. My guest today is Dr. Katie Mack. Katie Mack is Assistant Professor of Physics in North Carolina State University. She is a theoretical astrophysicist who studies a range of questions in the field of cosmology. Katie Mack is a big name in the field of cosmology and in the field of science communication. Today, we are going to discuss her new book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Dr. Katie Mack is with me on the phone line. Uh, Katie, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Katie, in your book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically speaking, uh, you discuss various possible endings of our universe, uh, various possible ways in which the universe may end. Uh, before we discuss that how our universe may end, let us discuss the beginning of our universe. Uh, at the beginning of the book, you present a very good introduction to cosmology. Uh, this is very well written. Uh, so let us discuss how did it all start. Uh, it all started uh, about 13.8 billion years ago with the Big Bang. Uh, how much do we know about the beginning of our universe? How much uh, do we know about uh, the Big Bang? Well, when we talk about the Big Bang theory as as physicists or cosmologists, what we're what we're really saying is that the universe began, um, or the the very early universe, you know, thirteen point eight billion years ago, the universe was hot and dense, and in some sense smaller than it is today. And we we get to that because we see that the the cosmos is currently expanding. So that what that looks like is that distant galaxies are all getting farther away from us, getting farther away from each other. There's more empty space in between things. And so you can just sort of straightforwardly dial that back and you find that the early universe was hot and dense and, and filled with sort of hot plasma. Because if you, if you imagine compressing all of the matter and radiation in the universe today into a smaller and smaller space, that space is hotter and denser and, and, and you have this this sort of primordial soup um, of of matter and energy at early times. So that's that's the the Big Bang theory, and uh, that's very very well tested because we can actually see that primordial plasma. We can actually see the the universe hot and dense in its earliest times because when we look out into the cosmos, we look out at distant galaxies. We see them as they were billions of years ago because the light has taken billions of years to get to us. And if we look far enough away, it stands to reason that we can see parts of the universe that are so far away that the light has left those regions 13.8 billion years in the past. We can actually see at the sort of edges of our vision, as far as we can look in every direction, we see parts of the universe that from our perspective are still in the final stages of that primordial fire. They're still experiencing that big bang, hot, dense state. So everywhere we look, we see the universe as it was, just as that fire was beginning to cool. Uh, when non-physicists uh, talk about big bang, uh, they have a slightly different view. Uh, uh, they view big bang as an explosion that happened somewhere a long time ago. And uh, that was uh, the beginning of the universe. Uh, but uh, that somewhere, Perhaps that point where the Big Bang happened uh, is now the entire universe? Well, we don't know if there was a single point. So it's it's true that people imagine uh, the Big Bang as this a singularity, like a, a point of infinite density, and then people imagine ex an explosion out outward from that point. And that's, that's not how we think of the Big Bang in cosmology. We think of it as as everywhere in the universe, the universe was hot and dense in this initial state. And whether there was ever a time when, when the size of the universe went to zero, when there was this you know, infinitely small, dense point, that, that's unclear. Um, but we do know that, that there was a time when every part of the universe, which may be infinite in size, may always have been infinite in size, but every part of the universe was extremely hot and dense. And so it really is that, that it was everywhere, that every part of the universe was in this hot, dense state. There's no center, everything is receding from. The whole universe is just getting larger. 
And it's, it's very hard to imagine that, that there's no center, that, that everything is just receding from everything else, or even the idea that, that the universe could be infinite and could always have been infinite and it's just getting bigger anyway. <laughs> like, that's a very hard thing to imagine. But what we observe is things getting farther away from each other. There's more empty space. There's more space between matter, you know, objects like galaxies and, and clusters of galaxies. So we just see the kind of density of things going down. Um, but we, we can't say, you know, for sure what the initial state was and whether there was, you know, there, I mean, there's no reason to believe that any particular point in the cosmos is special in any way. It seems to be pretty uniform everywhere, and every part of the cosmos had roughly the same history. Observable universe uh, is a term that uh, cosmologists uh, use uh, frequently. Uh, observable universe is the universe that we can see, the universe that we can observe. But universe does exist beyond uh, uh, these observable uh, boundaries. Uh, I believe observable universe is about uh, 46 billion light years across, uh, but the universe does exist beyond this distance. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're fairly sure that the universe goes on far, far beyond the observable universe. But the observable universe is it's what it sounds like. It's the part of the universe we can observe, and the the radius of that sphere around us is defined by how far away light would have taken the whole age of the universe to get to us. So when I mentioned that oldest light in the universe, that where we see, you know, at the farthest reaches of what we can see, we see this glow from from the time when the universe was hot and dense. That that distance. Um, that we're looking that that's the edge that's the edge of the observable universe roughly so so the the distance out to which the light from that point would have taken the entire age of the universe to get to us that's the edge of the observable universe because if there was let's say there was a galaxy or something a few billion light years farther away than that it would have taken it would take more time than there has been ever in the history of the cosmos for the light to reach us so it, it stands to reason that light has not reached us and so we cannot see things beyond that point so we're we're surrounded like we're in the center of a sphere that is the observable universe and that sphere is just defined by how long it takes light to travel a certain distance but there's nothing special about our point in the universe. Every point in the universe is the center of its own sphere, of its own observable universe. Um, and so based on our understanding of the nature of, of space, of structure in the cosmos, there doesn't seem to be anything special about the part of the universe that we're in or the parts of the universe that are far away at the edges of the observable universe. It seems that the cosmos is more or less the same everywhere. There's no... We don't see any drastic change in any particular direction we don't see any sign of an edge in terms of you know actual the actual properties of space changing the the way things look to us changes as you go farther away because you're looking farther back in time but the nature of space seems to be the same um, in every direction as far as we can look which suggests that the universe does extend much farther and and also we have uh, theories about the very early universe where there's this idea that the early in the early universe there was this very very rapid expansion phase called cosmic inflation, and if that's true, then that that would suggest that that there is much much more space far beyond our observable universe that that we are just a very very small part of a much much larger space. So we have very good reason to believe the universe continues far beyond our observable universe, and that it continues more or less in the same way. You know, it looks fairly similar to to the way things look here. But uh, unfortunately, we, we can't get direct uh, data about anything beyond that point. And uh, uh, when we try to see, uh, when we try to observe uh, the edge uh, of uh, the observable universe, uh, we can still see the glow of the Big Bang uh, in the form of uh, background radiations? Yeah, yeah. So... Because because uh, every direction we look, we can look far enough away to see the time, you know, 13.8 billion years ago when the universe was still on fire. The way that that kind of looks to us is that there's this this glow, this glow of, of, you know, radiating heat, basically, from every direction. 
uh, in a sphere around us, in a kind of shell around us at the, at the edge of the observable universe. So you can imagine that, that our observable universe um, is this kind of shell of fire <laughs> that uh, at, at you know, 46 billion light years away, um, there's this, this shell, this spherical shell around us of, of this background radiation. And that background radiation, we call it the cosmic microwave background. And it gives us some information about what the universe was like in those earliest times. It's, it's technically the light from, from the time when the universe was about 380,000 years old. Um, and it was just, just starting to cool from that primordial fireball kind of state. And so we can, we can actually map out that radiation. We can see patterns in that radiation, in that shell of fire that's all around us. Um, and learn something about what the universe was made of at that, that early time and how it was behaving and what kind of processes were going on. Expansion of the universe uh, itself uh, is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, at the beginning, uh, the universe expanded uh, really fast. Uh, then the expansion kept slowing down. Uh, then about uh, 5 billion years ago, the expansion started uh, speeding up again. Uh, Katie, what is going on uh, with the expansion of the universe? <laughs> it's very odd. You know, when when uh, when the universe was first discovered to be expanding, um, it there was it, it kind of made sense with our understanding of gravity at the time that there was there was this expansion kicked off by the Big Bang. And so the expansion was carrying on, but it was being slowed down by all the gravity of all the stuff in the universe. That was what stood to reason um, at the time. And so astronomers went around trying to figure out how quickly is the universe expanding? How much is the gravity of everything in the universe sort of putting the brakes on this expansion? And would it ever stop and turn around and everything come collapsing back together? Or would it continue expanding forever if there was, you know, not enough gravity to counteract that initial push of the, of the Big Bang expansion? And in 1998, it was discovered that actually the expansion was not slowing down. Uh, it was actually speeding up, and it, and it had been slowing down for, you know, the first nine billion years or so of the universe. The expansion had been slowing down; it had been slow, been you know, being slowed by the gravity of all the stuff in the cosmos. And then, you know, sort of around five billion years ago, that that reversed, and and the expansion was speeding up. And there's there's uh, no good explanation for that in the physics that's that was understood at the time when this was discovered. Uh, it's something new. We call it dark energy. There's something that's making the universe expand faster. It's a different kind of stuff than every, anything else in the universe. It's some kind of um, new kind of like energy field or something that has weird properties. And um, we don't know. We don't know what it is. We know that it makes the universe expand faster, and we can describe it in sort of mathematical ways as being a something that has negative pressure, which is a weird concept that has to do with how it how it acts on the on the expansion rate of the universe um, but uh, we we don't know for sure what it is and our current kind of best guess is that it's something called a cosmological constant which is a an idea that Einstein came up with as something that would sort of counteract the gravity of everything in the universe to keep the universe from collapsing on itself because at the time, Einstein didn't know the universe was expanding, and so he thought that that there had to be something holding everything up to keep it from from already having collapsed, you know, down to nothing. And uh, he threw that term away. They took that term out of his equations when the expansion of the universe was discovered, because you could just have sort of momentum from the from the Big Bang being responsible for the expansion, but. Now, uh, now that we know the universe is accelerating in its expansion, we, we need something that can counteract all the gravity and keep the universe from, from slowing. And uh, the, the cosmological constant seems to fit that bill. So it may be that the dark energy, whatever it is that's making the universe expand faster, is just this kind of property of space, this term in the equation that, that Einstein put in that says that space has a tendency to expand and um, and that's why the universe is accelerating in its expansion now. You have uh, briefly uh, touched upon this few moments ago. Uh, there are two important unknowns uh, that we are faced with. Uh, these unknowns are uh, dark uh, energy and dark uh, matter. 
we know the reasons uh, that why dark energy should be there in the system. Uh, we know what dark energy is doing, but we we don't know uh, what uh, dark energy is. Yeah, I mean, we we see that what it's doing to the universe. We see that it's making the universe expand faster, but whether it is a cosmological constant or some other kind of new component of the universe that maybe changes over time in an interesting way, that we don't know. So it's uh, at the moment all we can do is measure how it's expand how the universe is expanding and um, try and infer something about the dark energy that's causing that. But uh, it's you know whatever it is, it's it's invisible. Um, we haven't been able to find any laboratory experiment that could touch it. Um, it's uniformly everywhere in the universe, and all it's doing is making the universe expand faster. So it's a very difficult thing to study. Uh, let us uh, briefly talk about space. Uh, there is a lot of empty space uh, in the universe. Uh, but uh, uh, what is the nature of this empty space? Perhaps it is not empty after all. Uh, perhaps something is going on there? Well, yeah, so we know that um, that space contains something called vacuum energy, and uh, that's something that, that quantum mechanics um, tells us, that there's, there's some inherent energy to empty space, and it's possible that the cosmological constant or the dark energy is connected to this vacuum energy, and it's often called vacuum energy, this, the cosmological constant. Um, but when you do the calculations for how much of it there should be and uh, what it should be doing, you get different answers, whether you calculate that based on what you know about quantum mechanics versus what you know about, um, about the, the actual expansion of the universe. So, so it is a kind of vacuum energy. It is a kind of em energy of empty space. But whether or not that really fits into our understanding of quantum physics is, is still kind of an open question. We're still trying to figure out how that discrepancy works and whether the dark energy really is the same kind of stuff that we, we mean when we talk about vacuum energy from a, a quantum mechanics point of view. So it's, it's a little bit complicated to fit it into our, our current understanding of physics um, because the, the, sort of the, the magnitude of it seems to be off from what we currently understand. But we also know that there are gaps in our current knowledge. We know that um, there's a lot we don't understand about gravity and quantum mechanics and how those things fit together. So it's, um, it's something that we hope we, we, we can resolve uh, as we better understand dark energy and, and as we better understand you know, quantum physics in general. Katie, when we uh, talk about uh, the large-scale structure of the universe, there is a very large-scale structure, a kind of uh, web, uh, a, a web-like structure uh, that seems to link up galaxies scattered across the vastness of uh, uh, the universe. Uh, talk to us about this uh, cosmic web. When we, when we look out into the cosmos and we map out where all the galaxies are, um, they, they do fall along a, a kind of pattern that looks like a web. It looks, it looks a lot like, uh, like nerve cell networks, if you've ever seen a microscope image of nerve cell networks or, or, or sort of soap bubbles. Uh, you, know, the, you, have these, you have these clusters, you have these filaments, uh, you have these giant voids. So it's this very web-like structure in terms of how galaxies and clusters of galaxies are dis distributed in the in the in the universe, um, and that actually comes about very straightforwardly if you assume that um, if you assume that the universe is the the matter in the universe is mostly dark matter, which is this this uh, sort of invisible matter that acts very much like regular matter, like you know the stuff that we're made of, except that it doesn't interact with light, so it's invisible, we can't see it, and also because it doesn't interact with light, you can't touch it because when you touch things, that's actually, you're actually touching things by using electromagnetism to push on them. It's the, the electro, the electrons in your hand pushing against the electrons and the thing you're touching. That's how you, how you touch things. And, and because it's electromagnetism and because that's carried by light, by photons, if you can't see something, if it's truly invisible, truly doesn't interact with light, then it also doesn't interact with electromagnetism, which means you also can't touch it. So we think that the universe is basically the structure of the universe is built on this dark matter, this invisible matter that um, 
when it uh, when it you know evolves in the universe, it 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 has gravity, so it it comes together into clumps and into filaments, and it makes this this web-like structure, and then the the galaxies are sort of speckled in there um, because galaxies form where the dark matter is is uh, very dense. So the the gravity of the dark matter pulls in the regular matter. Galaxies form in the places where there's a lot of dark matter. And so you get this this uh, web-like structure of the dark matter, and then the galaxies are kind of tracing that out, sort of like, sort of like uh, you know beads of dew on a spider web. You you can't see the web, but you can see the the little little beads on top of it. So so galaxies in the universe uh, trace out that that web of structure that's that's um, that's uh, sort of built out of the the dark matter and. And the, one of the cool things about it is that when we, when we look at the patterns in the cosmic microwave background, the, this first light from the Big Bang, from, from the time when the universe was this hot, dense plasma, when we look at the patterns in that background light, we can see that there are places in that, in that background light where the, that, that primordial plasma was a little bit more dense and places where it was a little bit less dense. And if you take those that pattern and you put it into a computer and you say that the the little bit more dense places that's where there's slightly more matter a little less dense there's less matter and you just you know just throw that into a computer and let gravity happen on it um then it naturally evolves into a cosmic web and so we can we can very well predict the distribution of galaxies in the universe um in terms of the statistics of you know the shapes of how everything's laid out by uh by taking that that background light, that initial light from the the earliest stages of the universe, and um, and processing that and putting that into into simulations, and we just grow this cosmic web. We 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 build up the structure of the cosmos um, from that. So it's it's a very very cool uh, thing that you you can get out of um, out of just the initial conditions of the universe. You you predict very clearly what we see in the sky, and and that's all. That all works if you assume that most of the matter is this invisible dark matter. Thank you very much uh, for this very good uh, description. Uh, Dr. KT Mack, we are discussing your book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Katie, before we start looking at various ways in which uh, this universe may end, I want to ask this question. Why the universe must end <laughs> yeah well so we know the universe had a beginning you know we know that uh, that it started in this hot dense state and we know that it's been evolving and changing over time it's been expanding you know structures are forming stars have formed and all that and it, it's changing in in big fundamental ways over time and and there's there's really no way that that the universe just kind of pauses here and stays in exactly the state it's in now and, and never evolves towards something different. You know, um, the, the evolution of the universe is, is carrying on, it's aging, it's changing. And if you carry that forward, you inevitably get to a point where the universe is fundamentally so different that you can, you can very easily say that, that it is ended in the sense that an end of the universe for for our purposes right now is a universe where everything that currently exists in the observable universe has been destroyed, is unrecognizable. Um, so I'm calling that an end of the universe. I think practically speaking, that's the end of the universe where everything that we can observe is destroyed. Uh, so there are ways that space itself might carry on. There are ideas for you know, some aspect of the universe, uh, some parts of the universe might not completely cease to exist, but um, there's there's really no way for our cosmos to just keep, you know, keep forming stars forever, keep, you know, uh, have the stars in it continue burning forever. That's just, that's just not how it works. The, there's, there's going to be um, you know, we're going to, the stars are going to use up the, the fuel that they have. They're going to cease to be able to continue burning. Um, the, the, uh, overall disorder of the universe will increase because the second law of thermodynamics tells us that entropy always increases. Entropy is just sort of a, a term for the disorder in, uh, in a system. So, you know, there's, there's going to be 
you know, entropy increasing, things are going to decay. That, that's just how things work in, in our universe. And so over time, you, you do eventually get to a point where, where the, the kind of the way that the, the cosmos works now can no longer carry on. In the book, uh, you outline a number of ways uh, in which uh, this universe could end. I would like to touch upon uh, only two uh, of these possible uh, endings. Uh, I encourage listeners who find cosmology uh, interesting to read your book uh, for a detailed uh, description of other possible endings of the universe that you uh, discuss in, in, in the book. Uh, so the first possible ending of the universe that I intend to discuss is the one that, uh, in your view, can happen anytime. Uh, other possible endings of the universe may happen in a future far, far away. But there is one ending that can happen anytime. And it has something to do with the Higgs field. Uh, talk to us about this possible ending of the universe. Yes, yes. So uh, so the one that could technically happen at any moment is called vacuum decay. And and before I go into it, I just want to put a disclaimer that um, we don't think that it's likely to happen anytime soon. And, and based on our current best understanding, we would not expect it to occur if it's even going to for trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years. So, so a very, very, very long time in the future. But um, because it's based on a random event that cannot be you know, concretely predicted, there it, you can't you can't say it's definitely not going to happen right now. <laughs> you can just say that you know it's extraordinarily unlikely to happen anytime soon. Um, so the way that the vacuum decay works is we have in our universe something called the Higgs field, which is a kind of energy field that pervades all of space. And there's a particle associated with this energy field. The particle is called the Higgs boson. It's a particle that was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider in 2012. And the Higgs field has something to do with how particles got mass in the early universe. So it, it what it what it really does is it sets the it sets the rules for physics. It it sets the um the stage for how physics works, how particles work. So if the Higgs field takes on a certain value, then that sets you know, the masses of particles, how they interact with each other, which particles even exist can be set by what the value of the Higgs field is. And we know that in the very early universe, the Higgs field had a different value. Particles didn't have mass yet. There were different mix of particles and a different sort of set of fundamental forces of nature. And at some point in the very early universe, the Higgs field changed uh, and uh, and that that led to the kind of particle physics we have now, with um, particles being inter able to interact with each other in such a way that we can get molecules and atoms and and all of the kind of normal physics that we think of now. Um, Though that kind of those kinds of interactions were not possible before the Higgs field changed. So the value of the Higgs field as it is now is is what we need to have you know, particle physics and chemistry and all these things existing and working as they do. And so we really don't want the Higgs field to change value now. Right? We really want it to stay what it is because that's how we can exist. That's how we can be, you know, matter that holds together. Um, but when the Higgs field, when the Higgs particle was discovered at, at the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the mass of that particle and the masses of other particles in our standard model of particle physics gave us a hint that the Higgs field could change value, that it's, that it's uh, vulnerable to a certain inst instability where if you were able to disturb the Higgs field in a particular way, uh, in a very special way, then, then it would make the Higgs field change value at the point where you disturb it, and that change would propagate outward because that, that new value that you disturbed it to would be somehow preferable to, um, to the way that the Higgs field works. And so it's kind of like, um, kind of like if you had a, a glass balanced on the edge of a table. Um, the glass is, is fine sitting there at the edge of a table, but if you were to disturb it, it would fall off the table and hit the floor, and it would be sort of more stable on the floor. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fall anymore once it's down there but it would also be destroyed in the process. <laughs> and our, our universe is kind of in a similar situation where, you know, you can think of 
maybe our, our universe is this glass sitting on the edge of the table and and we really don't want it to fall down to the floor because uh, even though it would be more stable there, um, it would also be very bad for us. So there's this possibility, and we don't know for sure, there's lots of caveats here, but it, it appears that based on our current understanding of particle physics that it, it might be the case that that our universe is, is, has this instability in it. It's called, um, you know, it, the, the term we use for the, the sort of set of fundamental physical laws and everything that exists in our universe, the term we use is a vacuum state. So our vacuum state is defined as a state where we have the kind of particle physics and chemistry and everything that we understand and know right now. It's possible that our vacuum state is called a false vacuum, which means there's some true vacuum, which is the real like fundamental state of the universe that our universe could evolve into. So I mentioned something about disturbing the Higgs field. So if you were able to disturb the Higgs field somehow to make this, this uh, change, then that change would propagate outward. Um, and uh, the way that would happen is that it would basically, it would make a little bubble of the true vacuum somewhere in space where this, distur this disturbance happened. And that bubble would expand out at about the speed of light and just destroy everything in its path. And anything that ended up inside that bubble would be in a kind of space where the laws of physics are different and you know, atoms wouldn't be able to hold together anymore. You wouldn't have the normal mix of particles. It would be just total destruction for anything that was hit by that bubble. Now, the, the good news is that we don't know of any way for that bubble to, to be produced. Like, we can't, we don't know of any way to disturb the Higgs field in such a way that would make that bubble. And certainly we can't do it with, with particle colliders or anything like that. Um, but even even high energy events in the in the universe where you know you have much much higher energy collisions of particles than we could possibly ever do on earth even those things don't seem to be powerful enough to create this change to to disturb the higgs field in this way but there is um there is a quantum mechanical process that could happen that could do it for us um so i mentioned you know having a glass balanced on the edge of a table if if you don't touch that glass, if you're not if you're somehow you know not strong enough to knock it over, let's say that you're just a little ant and you just don't have the strength to knock that glass over, it should be fine. But um, there is this weird thing in quantum mechanics, which is that in principle, something that's uh, something that that is governed by the laws of quantum mechanics can pass through barriers without without having to go around them or anything like that. So so. Uh, there, an example that people use is if you have a, an electron on one side of a, a, a metal plate or something like that, that electron should not be able to go through that plate. You know, it should be able, it should be staying on one side of that um, of that barrier. But every once in a while, the electron will just appear on the other side through a process called quantum tunneling. Um, quantum tunneling is something that we use in technology all the time. It's it's not that weird an idea. It's weird in the sense of you know, it sounds strange, you know, it's a very strange thing for something to just appear on the other side of a barrier, but we use it in things like flash memory, we use it for certain kinds of microscopes, um, tunneling, scanning tunneling electron microscopes, these are microscopes that use this tunneling process to kind of leak electrons onto a surface uh, to do this microscopy, so so, so quantum tunneling is something that, that happens all the time in the universe, um, and so technically it could happen to anything. I mean, if you have a glass sitting at the edge of the table, there's some probability, some chance, it's a tiny chance, but there's some chance that that glass could quantum tunnel from that top of that table down to the floor. Um, I just dropped something in my room when I was waving my hands to, uh, to demonstrate this. Luckily it was not a glass. Um, so, so quantum tunneling is something that in principle could happen to macroscopic things. In practice, you know, the timescales for that would be absurd. It only really happens on the quantum scale, but unfortunately it could also happen to the Higgs field, which means that there could be a quantum tunneling event in the Higgs field that could kick it into this true vacuum state. And if that happened, then that would create this bubble of true vacuum that would expand through the universe and destroy everything. Now, fortunately for us, the chance of that happening anytime soon seems to be you know, of a similar kind of magnitude to the chance that your glass will gonna will will quantum tunnel down and onto the floor, it's it's a very 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 unlikely event, right? It would, it would the the time scale we would expect for this to happen is something like ten to the power of a hundred years. We really don't expect this quantum tunneling event to happen in the Higgs field anytime soon, 
But because it's a random event, because it's a quantum, you know, quantum tunneling event, we, we can't predict exactly when it will happen. Um, and so in principle, it could happen sooner than that. There's, there's no way for us to say it definitely can't happen soon. So, you know, all we can do is say it's, it's the time scale associated with it. We can calculate that. It's very likely not to happen in the next 10 to the power of 100 years. Um, and we don't really know for sure if it could happen at all because it's also based on the assumption that we understand particle physics well enough to make this this statement. And, and we know that there are gaps in our knowledge of particle physics. We know that the standard model of particle physics cannot be the whole story. Um, but it's an intriguing idea that you know the universe just might not be stable, that something could happen that would you know sort of create this bubble that that sort of destroys the whole universe very suddenly and uh, uh, the second possible uh, ending of the universe that i intend to discuss uh, um, uh, uh, is uh, the one that you have singled out uh, as the most likely ending of the universe uh, talk to us about that yeah, so the one we consider to be most likely is called the heat death. And this is this is considered to be most likely because it's the most kind of straightforward extrapolation from what's happening in the universe now. So as I mentioned, the universe is expanding, it's accelerating in, the, in its expansion, and whatever's making the universe accelerate in its expansion, we call that dark energy. And it might be this this thing called the cosmological constant, which is just sort of a term that Einstein put into his equations. It's it's a, a property of space that space just kind of has this inherent stretchiness to it. And if that's the case, if, if that's what dark energy is, if it's just this cosmological constant that everywhere in space there's some sort of inherent um, expansion built into the space, then what that means is that over time, as the universe gets bigger and bigger, there's more and more empty space, that empty space has this expansion in it, then there's more and more expansion and it just keeps going. It just keeps expanding, keeps accelerating in its expansion. So what that would do is that would stretch out the distances between distant galaxies. So right now we see the distant galaxies are moving apart from each other. That would keep going. So each galaxy or, or, or small group of galaxies would get more and more isolated. And if galaxies are getting more and more isolated, that means they're not interacting with each other as much, which means you're not bringing new gas into galaxies to form new stars. So the galaxies would, would run out of the ability to make new stars over time. And each galaxy would be so isolated that, it, that eventually that you wouldn't be able to see other galaxies. You wouldn't be able to see the distant galaxies in the universe. Um, and because there aren't new stars forming, all the stars that are already in your galaxy, those stars just start burning out. And so like in our galaxy, we would we would see that the there would be more and more stars burning out. There would be no more stars being being formed. And over time, the galaxy would get dimmer and dimmer. You know, the 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 stars would be burning out. Some would be collapsing into black holes, others would be become neutron stars or white dwarfs, these sort of dead stars. Those would gradually fade. And so over time, you would you would get this kind of darker and darker universe. And as the universe is expanding, it's also cooling because you're you're sort of dispersed dispersing the radiation um, through a larger and larger space. So the universe would get colder and darker and emptier. And because the the disorder in the universe is always increasing, because this entropy is always increasing, um, there's also just decay. You know, so things things are breaking down. Matter is breaking down. Structure is breaking down. And eventually you would get to a point where everything is decayed, everything is faded away, and all that's left in the universe is just sort of a, a tiny amount of waste heat of the processes of creation. So just this, this, this trace amount of radiation that's left over from, from everything that ever happened in the cosmos. And that's, that's what's called the heat death. When you, when you reach this point where the universe is maximally, you know, it's reached its maximum entropy state. So there, there can be no more disorder because all the, the you're already as disordered as you can possibly be. All that's left is this little bit of waste heat, and that's called the heat death. Uh, we can say that any possible uh, ending of the universe uh, uh, may happen uh, in a distant future. Uh, however, uh, there is an element of difficulty when 
uh, one uh, addresses questions such as uh, one day uh, everything will end uh, all that we know all that exists uh, all that we value uh, all that uh, we have created uh, uh, will will just vanish uh, it will not exist uh, anymore uh, when 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 you were working on this book uh, when you were researching for this book were there any moments of uh, intellectual depression <laughs> um i don't i wouldn't say depression exactly uh, it definitely it's definitely something that I had to grapple with, you know, the idea that that not only do we not go on forever as, you know, individuals, but maybe, you know, it's, it appears there will reach some point in the distant future when, in some real sense, our existence will not have mattered, you know, um, because there will be no trace left of everything that ever happened in our universe. It'll be totally destroyed. And so that information will be lost, the record will be lost, uh, nothing will survive of, of us. And what does that mean for our legacy? You know, what does that mean for meaning in life if it'll all be erased at some point? Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a strange thing to, to, have to, to have to grapple with. You know, we, we often think of our lives in terms of our, our impact on, on future events or future people, our, our legacy you know, what we, what we leave behind, how we make the world a better place or, or any, any kind of, you know, um, uh, construction like that, where, you know, there's some way that we are impacting the world. And, and if that'll all be sort of erased and forgotten, um, it's, it, it changes how we think about our, our impact, our, our legacy, just meaning in general. And so I spent a lot of, a lot of time, while writing this book and researching this book and talking to my colleagues, trying to trying to figure out how I feel about that, how how others feel about that, that idea that um, that you know there there's there will come a time when when it won't have mattered that we were ever here, um, and I think that my my personal take on it is that uh, I feel that it makes it it makes it more important to find ways to to have have a sense of meaning in the universe now in, in life now that don't rep the, that don't depend on something being kind of uh, justified after the fact but um, but you know different people see it sort of differently and for some it's a very depressing idea uh, for some it's a very freeing idea that you know maybe maybe it, it, it's better that, that there's no record we can't screw things up too much um, but uh, it's definitely something that I've, I've thought a lot about. Uh, the models uh, that we use uh, to study uh, our universe, the theories uh, that we have shaped uh, to understand the nature of reality, the equations that we have developed uh, to make calculations, and the values of various constants uh, that we have injected uh, in these equations. Uh, do you think the these models uh, are viable and uh, effective? Or do you think that we should revisit, review, and uh, perhaps update uh, these models? Well, there's a lot that we don't understand about the universe. There's a lot. There's a lot that um, you know we we will at some point need to revise. So right now we have we have two sort of two sort of frameworks that we use to think about physics. One is in, in cosmology, we have the so-called concordance model of cosmology, which is a, a set of principles or, or assumptions where, you know, we have a universe that started with a big bang. It went through this cosmic inflation phase um, and then this hot dense state. And then, you know, it's been expanding since then there's dark matter and dark energy. Those are the things that are kind of governing the, the evolution of the cosmos that that idea, um, that sort of set of of uh, I don't know properties of the universe is that's part of the co the co concordance co the concordance model of cosmology, um, and that fits all the data very well. Uh, there's there are very few places where there's any kind of conflict with that, and those places are places where you know they're they're very likely parts of parts of the astrophysics that we just haven't factored in. So that fits the data very well, but 
we also it also includes big areas that we don't understand, right? It includes uh, dark matter and dark energy, and we don't understand those things. We don't know how those work. So although we have a good description of the universe in the coordinates model, uh, we don't we don't have a good understanding of the universe in that model. And then at the same time, we have the standard model of particle physics. So on the other length scale, you know, at the the very small, we have this set of um, the set of of particles and set of forces of nature that work on the particle scale that uh, fits the data from all the experiments we've ever done. You know, so there are very few places where our experiments don't perfectly agree with the standard model of particle physics and the places where they don't perfectly agree, either it takes a small tweak to the model or, or we're not entirely sure of that result. Um, and so that all fits together very well, but the, the, the standard model of particle physics doesn't include something that could be the dark matter, doesn't include dark energy, um, and it doesn't work well with our understanding of general relativity, gravity. So we don't have a way to fit gravity into this particle uh, picture. And so we know that the standard model of particle physics is incomplete as well. And so it's a very strange situation where we have these two models that, that are doing a great job of describing the data, but we're really pretty sure that they can't be the final answers to anything. And the question now is, where do we go from here? You know, what, how, do we, how do we improve our, our theories, our, our models of both the very large and very small scales? Um, because right now we don't have a direction to go in these. We don't have a place where, you know, where we have some data we took that, that disagrees in such a way that tells us what we need to fix. But that's what we really want in physics is we want to do, we want to do experiments until we until we find the place where our current theory breaks down and then we get to improve it. And that's how you went from, you know, Newton's description of gravity with, you know, balls rolling down hills and the moon orbiting the earth and all of that to Einstein's description of gravity that can, that can also apply to extreme environments like black holes and, and, you know, relativistic speeds and all of that kind of thing. So we want, something like that, that describes everything perfectly well as we've currently observed it, but then also has a discrepancy at some extreme case. And that discrepancy will tell us how to improve the model, how to, you know, find a, a more comp comprehensive theory that, that will explain everything that we have and also explain that new situation. And at the moment, we, we just don't have that because we haven't found the discrepancy yet. <laughs> so we don't know, we don't know what the, the, uh, the discrepancy will look like. We don't know what, where our current theories break down. And so it's very hard to know how to improve our theories to, uh, you know, to work in a more general situation if we don't know uh, what, what it is that's going to break. Uh, perhaps uh, what you are uh, alluding uh, to is uh, uh, the effort uh, to develop uh, a theory of uh, everything? Yeah, yeah. So, so a theory of everything would be one that, that, combines our understanding of gravity, you know, general relativity with our understanding of quantum mechanics and the, and the, the forces of, of nature at, at the small scales. So right now we, can, we know of several forces of nature. We have electromagnetism, we have the weak nuclear force, we have the strong nuclear force, and then we have gravity. And, and we have ways to put the, the three subatomic forces, you know, electromagnetism, weak and, and strong nuclear forces, we have ways to, to kind of combine those into one theory that, that sort of makes sense. But we don't have a way to combine those things with gravity yet. And if we did, if we could put all of that together, that would be called a theory of everything. And that would be, that would be a, a much more complete picture of physics. Uh, and string theory is, is an attempt to do that. So, so string theory, in principle, can combine these things, but we're still kind of figuring out if string theory works. It's very hard to test. There are lots of versions of string theory that, you know, kind of work in different ways. So that's pretty much still under development. And uh, beyond that, there are a couple of other ideas like loop, loop quantum gravity and stuff like that. But um, because we don't have the data yet, it's very hard to know if we're on the right track. I believe uh, as a research student, uh, uh, you came across uh, Professor Stephen Hawking? Yeah, I've um, I've interacted with him several times in my career, actually. So uh, I I first met him when I was still sort of a young teenager because I went to a talk of his and uh, 
and sort of said hello to him after the talk. And, and he said, you know, he, he responded to me, which was very exciting to me at, at the time. I, I, I told him I enjoyed his work and he said, thank you very much. And, you know, as, as a small, you know, a young kid, that was that was an influence on me because I, I had been following his work. I'd been very interested in these these big mind bending cosmology topics that he worked on. But then when I was uh, a graduate student, uh, I spent some time at Cambridge University and I, I gave a talk that he came to um, in the cosmology group. And that was exciting that he was there in the audience of, me, of my uh, seminar. Um, and then I've, I've also, you know, been to know various conferences and and dinners and things like that where he where uh, he was in attendance as well and I've spoken to him about my research very briefly um, so so yeah I, I interacted with him a lot when I was at Cambridge and and various points in my career Dr. Katie Mack uh, we have been uh, discussing your book uh, the end of everything uh, astrophysically speaking uh, we have touched upon a number of interesting topics and uh, fascinating concepts that you present in this book uh, is there anything else uh, we should discuss before uh, I close this discussion uh, something that uh, I might have overlooked uh, something that I might have uh, missed um, no, I don't think so. I, I think that one thing I want to make sure that, that people know about, about the book is that, um, well, two things, I guess. One is uh, it's really it's really not written with the assumption that you know physics and astronomy already. So there's uh, it it is written to be accessible to people who are not experts in the field. But I, I would hope that even if, if you do have a good background in that, there are, because I'm covering a lot of new things and a lot of sort of deep ideas, there's there's still more to learn. Um, but also, uh, a lot of people have, have worried that it's a very depressing book, and um, I, I do want to say that I, I don't think it's a depressing book. It's uh, it's written very light, and uh, you know, uh, and and not not a sort of uh, it's not a sort of heavy um, you know uh, difficult tome. It's 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 uh, I, I try and keep things pretty cheerful. <laughs> This book is indeed uh, a fascinating read. Uh, the book touches upon a number of important concepts uh, in the field of cosmology with lively wit and humor. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I try I keep more or less the same tone in the book that I use on Twitter. So if you if you like that kind of casual conversational thing, then um, then you'll then you'll probably appreciate it. Dr. Katie Mack, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's, been, it's been a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you and uh, goodbye. Thanks. Bye.